Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. This is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, he's a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, Forrest, and looking forward to this topic. Yeah, very, very much the same. Today, we're going to be exploring a lot of material related to our wants and needs, because everybody has wants and needs. These range from our basic biological needs to more complex psychological needs, like the need to be supported by other people, feel good at what we do, and generally feel like we're the ones who control how our life turns out. For some people, those wants and needs are right at the surface. They've never found it challenging to have a feeling for their own desires in life. But even when we do know what we want, it's easy for fear and shame to get in the way of expressing it to other people, or to prevent us from taking the practical steps that would get us where we want to go. And then there are other people who struggled for much of their life to have an authentic sense of their own needs. People who are good at identifying their needs are more likely to get them met, both because they can deliberately pursue them and because they can better communicate them to other people. On today's episode, we're going to be focusing on figuring out what we need, getting in touch with our interior, and dealing with some of the difficult emotions that can pop up along the way. Before we get into it, a couple of quick reminders. First, remember to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're currently listening to it on. That really helps us out. And then second, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for the cost of just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and receive bonuses like deep dives into the research behind each episode, transcripts, and ad-free versions of every episode. So, Dad, just to kind of get us started here, are there some common features that you've found in the work that you've done with people among people who struggle to have a strong sense of their own desires? Yeah, I really have. And I think this is also supported in the research. So when I go through these quick categories, people might look inside themselves and see what relates. And to be clear, many people know that they'd like a little more salt on their eggs or ketchup on their <laughs> french fries. That's pretty easy. You know, they want other people sure. to stop at red lights and, uh, yeah. you know, to be nice to them. It's the more fundamental desires, needs and wants that we're going to be exploring here which often show up in relationships. Yeah. One major reason that makes a person, let's say, have difficulty identifying and then acting on their more important wants and needs is that they're just out of touch with themselves broadly mm. for mm-hmm. all kinds of reasons. So they're not very in touch with what they don't like, nor are they very in touch with what they do like. They're just kind of out of touch with themselves. Or related to that, based on their temperament, it's often literally their neurology, they are in touch with certain kinds of needs, like needing or wanting that which is threatening, painful, or could be to go away, but they're not very in touch with what they'd like to have happen. The opportunities and the rewards, let's say, that they'd like to have. Other people are pretty clear about the goals they'd like to pursue and the opportunities they'd like to pursue. But neurologically, literally, their amygdala is not very informative for them about the hot stoves, including in relationships, that's really in their best interest to pull their their hand away from. Second, they're people who've grown up in an environment as a child in which specific needs were suppressed or shamed or punished for being expressed. Let's say a child has a need to protest some 
mistreatment or just some situation with their parents. And that protest is really punished. Or very often, kids just have a longing for contact. They'd like to be listened Mm. to. They'd like to feel that someone is emotionally available over there. They'd like to feel that someone cares about what they want. And for whatever reason, that's denied, exiled, shamed and punished and so forth in their background. So that's the second major category. And Mm -hmm. then there's a third category where people grow up in a culture in which people aren't supposed to say what they want. Maybe Mm -hmm. they can hint Mm -hmm. vaguely, euphemistically, but they're supposed to read each other's minds and no one's supposed to say what they really want. Yeah, totally. And so it can feel, yeah, almost like a sin or you're violating your gender socialization to talk about the things that you want. And then the the last category is a more commonplace one. It's just people are swept along day to day. They've got Mm. kids to raise, jobs to go to, fish to fry. They've got stuff to do. And they just sort of doesn't even almost occur to them that along the way, for example, when they get toward the end of their life and they look back, they might feel like, wow, that was it? Yeah, you know, (laughs) held a job. I mean, I was a good parent and maybe that is enough, but wow, looking back, there were important Mm -hmm. things I really cared about, I really valued, I really dreamed of, I really longed for, I didn't get in my marriage or in my friendships or in my activities in the world. And you know, I kind of wish I had. Well, I think that's a great summary of the different categories for starters and to maybe do a classic forest here and break those categories into other categories. I feel like there are kind of two big options here, right? Yeah. One, you're a person who just doesn't have a feel for your interior, as you were saying. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean that like you actually have a hard time answering a question like, what do you really want? Mm. And then second category, there are people who do really have a sense of what they want, but they have a hard time expressing it for whatever reason shame and fear get in the way, maybe for one of the many reasons that you already named, ranging from painful experiences in childhood to different forms of gender socialization to whatever else. Mm -hmm. So if that's kind of our framework, there are three steps to dealing with this. That, at least in my mind, there are sort of three steps to dealing with this. And the first is- You mean you have a systematic plan? Wow, Forrest, how I, I do, I do. This is shockingly on brand, right? <laughs> we're, we're, really, we're really filling out the bingo, the being well bingo card to begin this episode. <laughs> Different categories of things, a systematic plan to move through them. We're just checking all the boxes here right off the bat. But part of the reason we're doing it in this way is because there's a lot of like, there's a really soulful side to yeah, this. that's right. And that's kind of what we want to get to, but it helps to have a little preamble to set it up. Yeah. And so anyways, three different things that people can do to deal with this as uh, if it's like a core issue that they want to face in their life. And the first step is classic Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Accepting that you have a problem or facing the presence and the reality that we all do have needs and preferences and wants, even if we've really pushed them down beneath the surface. And then second, we can go through a process of identifying what they are. And then third, we can do our best to meet them in a variety of different ways. And there are problems that appear for people at each one of these steps, right? Like none of these travel in isolation to the others. They're all kind of swept up together as a sort of parfait of needs, if you want to kind of put it that way. And that kind of creates an overview of how we're really going to approach this topic today. We're going to sort of move from one of those categories to the next one, to the next one. 
And we recently posted a video that went actually a little bit viral on TikTok and on Instagram. And it was just a short clip of me talking about how people with complex PTSD often develop it from not having their needs met in childhood, which is a reason that it's also often referred to as developmental trauma disorder. And one of the major responses to the video, and of course, that's not the only way that people develop complex PTSD, it's just a major way that people do. And one of the common responses to the video was basically like, wait, what do you mean different kinds of needs? What do you mean like basic needs that aren't being met in childhood? So I think that it might be helpful here, Dad, to just do a little overview of some of the different categories of wants and needs that people might have and, and talk about this a little bit more viscerally. As you well know, because you helped write the book, Resilient, uh, co-wrote it with me, <laughs> I think that biologically there's a longstanding model that people need to, animals need to avoid pain and approach pleasure. I think that that binary categorization as avoiding or approaching pain or pleasure motivation is really simplistic and reductionistic. And at some level, I just wonder about the sociology of male-dominated science hmm. and even philosophy and, frankly, Buddhist psychology, my own home tradition, that makes it so binary and leaves out, duh, obviously, our need to attach to others, including mm. others of our kind, which you see biologically, and you really see it in mammals and primates and hominids and humans. We need to attach mm. to others. A very large percentage of the build-out of the neocortex, the modern brain that has tripled in volume in the last several million years, is about fulfilling our need to attach to others. So we have these three major needs, I think, safety, satisfaction, and connection, broadly stated. Mm. That's one framework. I think it's a very useful one. It's grounded in a lot of biology. It's grounded in evolution. Then another framework that I did a lot of study on is Maslow's need structure. And sure. as people have pointed out, it's not so much that it's a hierarchy of needs, although there's some sense of that. It's just a kind of a useful way to take a look at all of our needs and to make a key distinction. So a quick summary. Essentially, we have needs for raw survival. We have needs for sexuality and pleasure. We have needs for belonging and needs for status, you know, as kind of a summary. And as those needs are increasingly met, so-called lower needs then make room for higher needs. I should have included a sense of power that you have some power, mm. some agency, some mm -hmm. effectiveness. And then there's the last need, which he called a be-need, a being need, that doesn't presuppose something missing or wrong, a deficit or disturbance you know, in the meeting of a need, but is rather self-actualization. It's about actualizing, enacting various capabilities and movements of the heart and the spirit inside. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. another really interesting way to think about needs. The last thing I'll just say about needs and wants is sometimes people make, to me, a false dichotomy between a pure biological need and a more general psychological need. Mind mm. and body swirl together. And mm -hmm. the point of all this for you and me is to really help people wake down, as Samuel Bonder puts it, not just wake up, to mm. reclaim their interior and mm -hmm. to honor the totality of their longings and values and desires. And then on the basis of that honoring, you know, find appropriate regulation. Not all desires should be acted upon, but the foundation of all that, as you said from the get-go, is including all of your needs. 
I think those are great structures broadly for how to think about this territory and categorizing different groups of things and all of that. Really practically on a personal level, I think that I relate to my own wants and needs once I was kind of thinking about this to do the prep mm -hmm. for this conversation as, as themselves falling into these different categories. And the first one of those is kind of big picture wants. And this might be desires for what I want my life to look like or what I want to accomplish in this life mm. or even what I want on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, what do I want the overall structure of my day to be? And then the second category falls into what I might call like process wants and needs. Mm. And this includes a whole bunch of material related to how I would like things to be in order for them to be comfortable for mm. me. And this includes like setting up my day in a way that really works for me or knowing how I prefer people to interact with me in order for me to get the most out of that interaction. And a great example of this is certainly for anybody who has any form of neurodivergence. I'm extremely neurotypical, but my partner Elizabeth was recently diagnosed with ADHD. And that diagnosis has actually really supported her and getting in touch with her desires for how to set up the environment mm. in order to make it maximally functional for people. So we've yeah. done a lot recently around the house in terms of just like writing things on whiteboards and making formal lists just so that she has something to refer to so she doesn't get distracted or forgetful or whatever about different tasks that she has to perform throughout a day. And then the third category, and this weaves in and out of the other two, are our emotional and psychological wants and needs, predominantly our emotional ones. Um, and for me, this would be things like wanting to be liked. You know, that's mm. a big one for me. I want people to like me. And sometimes we I don't like want to admit. First. Oh, well, thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. I but... like you immensely. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, Dad. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I haven't even gotten into lovable. I was going to say that extremely sweet aside aside. <laughs> sometimes we don't want to admit that we just yeah. want people to like us. Or we don't want to admit that we get nervous or afraid when people come at us with mm -hmm. a certain kind of communication topspin or mm. something like that. And because I think a lot of that just comes from different messaging socially in terms of what, yeah. you know, and this is a whole other conversation, but just like the veneer we're supposed to present out into the world of being like strong and self-sufficient, very like Western ideology, all of that good stuff. Yeah. And so people are often really uncomfortable just claiming and being honest with themselves oh, yeah. about these fuzzier needs that can exist beneath the surface. Yeah, you can see some of that. I was just thinking in people who have an interest in personal growth and sure. in which they appreciate the value of emotional balance, equanimity, mm, resilient mm -hmm, well-being, mm -hmm. so forth. And sort of a mark of progress there is that other people do what they do and you're not so affected by it. On the mm. one hand, on the other hand, that can be a little bit of a pretense or yeah. a trap in which it feels somehow uncool or unrealized or unawakened <laughs> or unmindful or something yeah. to acknowledge, wow, I'm still obsessing about that thing you said yesterday <laughs> or, yeah, you know, totally. or that just kind of landed on me or that little kid in me boing, got really wounded by that. And so I think you're, you're totally right. I think that I identified these groups for me personally because these are the categories that often bring us into conflict or into friction with other people. Yeah. If you think about it. Because like these are all places where sometimes there's a request to be made. Yeah. Or they're places where maybe we want to do this thing this one way and this other person doesn't want us to do it that way. And then what do you do? Yeah. And 
this is just my view and take it if it's useful and leave it if it isn't. But I think that I've become a lot better at meeting my own needs as I've gotten realer about just my own opinion that like it's it's our job to figure this stuff out, mm. to achieve it, to realize it, to communicate it to other people, to act on it, to bring it into being, use whatever language you want to use. Like it's it's my job to meet my needs. Let's say that I'm in a relationship with somebody and they're consistently not meeting a request for whatever reason. Well, I've got two options. I can either come to terms with that inside of myself or I can try to move out of relationship with that person. Mm. That's it. That's all yeah. I can do. I can't change them. I can try to influence them maybe yeah. in some healthy ways, not in some unhealthy ways. But end of the day, it comes back to me. Mm. And I think that the more that I've just leaned into that underlying ideology, the better that things have gotten for me in terms of meeting my own needs. I know we're going to get practical in just a moment, but in the spirit of inclusiveness, I wanted to name a couple other models, I guess, Great, for yeah. needs in which people might find some kind of home. So the first of these is some time ago, I was sort of asking myself, why live, <laughs> right? Mm. If there's a certain amount of suffering in life and if life to some extent is, as Suzuki Roshi apparently put it, like setting sail in a boat that you know will sink, uh, <laughs> what's the point? Why are we doing it, right? What's a good enough reason to stick around or type of reason? And to me, the answer to that question can fall into three categories. First, quality of life, broadly. Having fun with friends, feeling like you're getting some work done that's important. Is it good enough to want to wake up the next day? Okay, mm. quality of life purposes. And people can ask themselves, how are you doing with your quality of life purposes? Second purpose, whether or not you get quality of life is service, it's contribution. You hope to have quality of life for yourself along the way, but whether you do or not, you're motivated around being helpful. Third major purpose, learning broadly. Just learning more about the world for its own sake, curiosity, investigation, and learning that is the form of personal growth, healing, growing, even awakening. And this, this is where I would put, for example, a lot of spiritual practice under the heading mm. of learning. So that structure, quality of life, service, and learning might be an interesting way to think about purposes in life and what you're doing here. And to ask yourself, is one of those three being untended to? Second, a lot of research on adult development draws on the dreams we had for our life when we were young, mm -hmm. including getting at the essence of those dreams, not so much their form. Maybe a person wanted to be a rock star when they were young. Well, that ship has sailed. You never learned how to play a musical instrument and <laughs> you can't sing worth a darn. Me, let's say. But there's something about being a rock star in terms of getting loose, having fun, large audience, making people happy that maybe can be fulfilled today. And it's worth dusting yeah. off and thinking about. So dreams for your life when you were young that still have some merit to them. That might be an inquiry that's really worth doing. And then the last one is the most airy-fairy, but in some ways, it definitely is pretty far-reaching and profound. Often what happens as we grow up is that we set aside important parts of ourselves, maybe mm -hmm. because they were punished or maybe because nobody related to them or we didn't have any models for that part of ourselves, a creative artist, someone who lives in the woods, whatever it might be. And you might ask yourself, especially in midlife, huh, 
are there things that important but pushed aside parts of me want, or it's in their nature to go down certain roads that are worth me investigating and even supporting inside myself these days. And then the last one, the view from the porch. Mm, you you love know this, this exercise. Yeah. yeah, this is a this is a classic. Yeah, it's the idea that there you are toward the end of your life. You're still yeah. hale and hearty, but you know, you're pretty wrinkled and you're looking back over your life. From that perspective, on the rocker mm. and on the porch, what will you want to be glad that you had done in this life? What do you hope you will be glad about pursuing, fulfilling, honoring in yourself? Yeah. And sometimes what comes up for people is an answer kind of in the form of, wow, if I looked back right now from the porch, if someone said to me, mm-hmm. I had a year to live. This were it, yeah. Yeah, there are certain key regrets mm-hmm. that would come forward for me that I, I have not pursued or honored or fulfilled or they haven't yet come true for me. And that regret can be a real teacher too. Yeah, for sure. So just to bring this toward the practical a little bit, Dad, I want to ask you basically what do you think supports people in getting in touch with these deeper wants and needs? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin it toward the personal here. What do you think helped you do this? I had a very early young sense of mm. the unnecessary unhappiness of most people. Even in my earliest memories, two, three mm. years old, just an attunement and a kind of a wistful longing that people would be happier. And I didn't know how to make it happen. And I grew up in a fairly ordinary, decent, normal range, intact family, no trauma, no abuse, and yet a lot of normal range bickering, wrangling, and unfulfilled dreams. When I think about my mom in particular, partly having to do with her role as a, as a woman and a housewife, you know, in the 50s, 1950s. So I think part of what set me on my way was I was just tuned into happiness in a healthy, fulfilling sense as an important value because I could see that it wasn't present. It wasn't happening for other people. I think that's kind Hmm. of early on. So just to pick that out really quick. So this is using a feeling you had when you were young as a way to inform your wants and needs later on in life. Yeah, Yeah, maybe whatever might be true about past lives, don't know. We kind of leave that stuff out on this podcast, but (laughs) I don't know. That's being well after dark. That's the the Rick Hansen spirituality (laughs) hour that comes on, that comes on in our next time slot. (laughs) <laughs> That's a good one. We got to do it. You know, I'm just imagining the soundtrack or maybe some some early, you know, I don't know what, Pink Floyd, you know, just. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think just like the music. Twilight Zone music. Yeah, we got to do it. Uh, but my point is, you know, early on, the value of well-being, I guess. and, mm. and Yeah, that was a big from, priority for you. Yeah, kind of a spiritual perspective almost cool. about it. You know, just not so much the well-being that comes from eating a Clay's donut, although that's great, even though your mom disapproves. But, you know, your nutritionist <laughs> mom. But soul-feeding well-being, heart-filling mm. well-being. Okay, that was one. And second, I think a thing that helped me was pretty early on, I got in touch with an aspect that's present in all of us. I'm going to use Mm. a tricky word here, that is feral. Mm. Not malevolent, not mean, but on your own side in a profound and unqualified way. Mm. 
where there's just a kind of independence that says whatever in the world is going on around me in the limited range of options I've got, I'm going to do the best I can for myself. Now, the best I can for myself with enlightened self-interest means promoting the welfare of other people around me and not mm -hmm. being a jerk and not setting yeah. myself up for attack and all the rest mm -hmm. of that. But at the core of that is this feeling that there you are in your little boat swirling along down the river of life as a 15-year-old or a 55-year-old. Mm. And the question is kind of, once you start to realize, wow, I'm swirling down the river and there's some rapids ahead and I'm bouncing off boulders and this is not fun. And, you know, I'm taking water over the side and nobody was with me I like, and there's not enough food in the boat. You know, when you kind of go, ugh, at a certain point, and this is the pilot light for people. This is the kernel of the everything changing is you go, huh, I'm going to try to make it better. Mm. Better is wants. Better is needs. I'm going to try to make it better. And I'm going to be determined and sustain that determination after that. And in the face of any and all people, and this is so important for people who've been routinely mistreated in society, structurally, especially if those around you are saying, no, you don't have the right to have that attitude toward yourself, to really, really hold on to it. You may need to hide it to survive your family or your neighborhood or your current situation for a time. But deep down inside, no, you will do what you need to do to flourish and mm. protect yourself and keep on going within reasonable code, taking into account enlightened self-interest and so forth. And really what you're talking about in this is just getting on your own side, I think which is where all of this starts, I think, including that contact with maybe deeper ways that wants and needs can show up in our life, right? Are you fundamentally motivated by a desire to have things turn out well for you? It's about your relationship with you, and it's about what you're getting out of life. And it's really okay to be on your own side and to pursue meeting your own needs. Very much so. And, and in this, I kind of want to stress like a tone, because it's so mm. easy to misunderstand this. For me, it's a tone of kindness and caring mm. toward your one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver put it. And it's like, this life matters. Much as we would look at another person and we could mobilize loyalty to them and a fierceness, a skillful fierceness on their behalf. If a person doesn't have this skillful fierceness on their own behalf with a notion that it is principled and ethical, actually, to have and enact this skillful fierceness on their own behalf, then they tend to just drift and twirl down the river of life and whatever happens, happens, and maybe they're lucky and maybe they're not. So I would love here if you're open to doing it, Dad, because you've named two things already. You've named getting in contact with the nature that we had when we were young, which is something we've talked about on the podcast a thousand times. And as you know, I am like a major league proponent on. It's been profoundly useful for me personally. And then the second thing that you've named is this focus on being on your own side, self-reliance, kindness for yourself, just as we have kindness for others, not getting subsumed by too much kindness for ourselves or too much kindness for others and all the walk in the middle path, all that good stuff. You mentioned before we started recording that you thought that there was a lot of value to people in doing some things that were a little bit more experientially oriented around getting in touch with their needs, contacting their interior, whatever it is. And I just want to kind of open the floor here for you to do that with people now. 
with the disclaimer, as we all know, that this is not psychotherapy per se, I'll just name a couple of things that a person right now could take a breath or two, five, yeah. 10 seconds to engage, sure. and then could take significantly more time with. Mm -hmm. All right. And before we do this, a bit of a trigger warning, this territory can be surprisingly emotional if you open to it. Well, that said, one thing a person could do is imagine a young version of you and you can allow intuition to surface and age, maybe a version of you as a young adult, younger, you know, 10 years old, eight years old, or even all the way back to being a toddler or baby. So you could look at yourself and ask that you, what do you want? What do you want? And open to whatever answers, including almost nonverbal or imagery-based answers, come forward. The second thing you can do, and I'm just going to take around 10 seconds of quiet for each of these, is you can reflect upon a time in your life, a situation. It could have been a conversation briefly with a stranger on a bus. It might have been a week at summer camp. It could have been a business project in which you just felt that your needs were met, that all the boxes or most of the boxes were getting ticked. You were running on most, if not all, of your cylinders. It just felt kind of comprehensively fulfilling and rewarding. Mm. And the point is not to get attached so much to what happened and cling to it, but rather to use that as a teaching for you that could suggest, oh, what are all of your important needs or most of them, and what is it like when they're fulfilled? Mm. That's a way into identifying, for example, some of that. So people can do that kind of thing as well. And then the last little suggestion I have experientially draws on the work, the classic work of Stephen Covey in his classic book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it has to do with the distinction between urgent and important and the category of important but not urgent, which is the category that we tend to shelve day after day. So here too, a person could just think to themselves about the stuff that is neither urgent nor important. They can think to themselves about the stuff that's urgent but not important, but you got to do it. And the short list of what's urgent and important, which tends to usually rise to the stack, top of the stack. But what about the category important but not urgent mm. that keeps getting sidelined, keeps getting shelved? Are there projects? It's important, but day-to-day, year-to-year, it keeps getting shelved, for example. For you, the listener, you, Forrest, even, does your heart, does your intuition tell you, you know, there's something that on any given day gets pushed aside by what's urgent, 
And some days, okay, that makes sense, but as the days become years, something speaking to you that's important to address, to visit, to see, to experience, to accomplish, to say, before your clock runs out. Okay, those are three. There are others, but how was that for you, Forrest? Anything come to you? The category of, and, I, and I've heard the, um, you know, identify a time in your life where things were all going pretty well, and you can use that as a sort of model mm. for how they might go well in the future. I think that's super yeah. useful. The important but not urgent one, I had heard that category before, but I never heard that as like a way into identifying needs. And I think that one's really juicy. I really liked that one. Yeah, oh, that's good. Because I do think that that's, it, it's such a, a lighthouse for what do you want when the pressure's off? Yeah. What do you want for when you don't have to be compensating for something or you don't have to have all of these other concerns or considerations that are weighing you down? Like when it's truly just you, what's really important to you? And that gets back again to what you were talking about a little earlier, I think, about, about self-reliance and about getting on your own side and all of that material. It's really a way into that. Like when it's just you, how do you want things to be? And then, okay, of course, we got to accommodate other people and live a congenial and relational life and all that good stuff. But, you know, truly, at the bottom, what do you want? And that can be maybe a safer way for people to get into that because it can be a way to get around some feelings that people might have about thinking that their wants or needs are like too much for other people or that they're too difficult to accomplish when also weighing the wants and needs of others, which I know is just a major block to people because many people have reached out to us with questions about, wow, I want to meet my wants and needs in these various ways, but whenever I do, I feel like I'm imposing on others. And certainly for people who are interested in a podcast like ours, there's a lot of sensitive, well-meaning people out there. And uh, so that can be a real limitation that comes up. I'm really glad you dove into it. And I'm thinking about a kind of objection that might understandably arise. Mm. Someone who might say, well, this is all well and good, but doesn't this sound like a lot of navel gazing when the world is burning <laughs> up? People are starving and, you know. Sure, uh, sure, okay, <laughs> yeah. Two minutes to midnight in the nuclear warfare, you know, oblivion Armageddon. Yeah, climate clock. change. Yeah, two points here. It's really important in all kinds of ways and for all kinds of reasons to address the needs and wants of others. Right. And we can do that alongside addressing our own needs and wants. Part one, part two, addressing our own needs and wants often enables us to sustain the good work over the long haul rather than burning out. And we have to keep yeah. refueling ourselves along the way. That's really true. But here's the part I really want to emphasize. I think one of the great unfulfilled needs and wants that I've encountered in you know my career as a therapist and just working with people in general is the unfulfilled expression of the love they have to give. Mm. And for many, many people, that sense of bottled up contribution, love, yeah. especially a, emotional yeah. contribution to others, is mm. a real wound for them. It's a real burden for them. And one of the things that I've seen for people a lot is that they would be really served by honoring their need to give more freely and generously without exhausting themselves, without getting sucked into a caretaking role, to be clear, but to 
give more generously and freely the blessing of others that's in their heart, the mm. seeing the good in others, wishing others well in simple, authentic ways doesn't mean becoming a doormat or a chump, you know, expressing or feeling compassion for others, a, a moment of empathy for their suffering combined with, with goodwill and benevolence or, or kindness or friendliness, pausing to receive others, giving them the gift of your undivided attention for mm. three breaths in a row, let alone three minutes in a row. Wow, 180 Let alone 45 seconds. minutes in a row, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, as we do on this podcast, yes. So, what do you think about <laughs> that one, whippersnapper? Uh, I I think it's great. I think it's a it's a totally real category for people. It was huge um, for me. Unfulfilled, yeah, yeah. Un, unexpressed love was one of my greatest sorrows. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, undelivered communications of all kinds. I think it's just a huge form that this one takes, and. Yeah. Often what happens is we have these unmet needs and wants with other people, particularly getting to those those process-oriented ones that I was talking about earlier, how we would mm -hmm. like people to interact with us or how we would like yeah. to interact with others. And a lot of the time, those just go unexpressed. We just never say them. And they build up and they build up and they build up. And to use a metaphor that we've used previously on the podcast, it's like tossing an unlit match into the corner of the room over and over and over again until eventually it just takes this tiny spark and then the whole house burns down. And I, I just, I have such personal experience seeing that in the relationships of my friends and people around me and, and all of that. And, and so I think that those, those unexpressed wants and needs, the undelivered communications, including the ways in which we want to give more to other people, mm. is just a huge part of this territory. So we've talked a fair amount so far about the kinds of needs and wants yeah. mm -hmm. a person might have. And you've been really candid in a way mm -hmm. that has touched my heart for us. I thought has been brave in this podcast about your own journeying in this territory sure. in which you have become over time, and I've seen it, much more in touch with your own needs, wants, desires, and so forth. What are some of your suggestions for people, things they can do themselves to get more in touch with their needs, wants, and desires? Well, great question. And this is, I'm still very much of the figuring it out stage. So I want to be transparent about that. And also something else that I said earlier that I just want to highlight again here is that I'm a pretty neurotypical straight white guy, which means that the world is mostly set up in a way that works for me. So those kind of friction oriented with the world needs are, are a little bit a little bit less present for me personally. So most of the ones that I've really had to engage with are what my emotional needs are and then what my kind of more big picture needs are. So these are a few things that have, have helped me personally, but I also think they're just big categories of things that help people. And the first one is developing a skill that's called interoception. It's a fancy word, but it basically just means internal mindfulness. And there's a, a big body of research that suggests that mindful awareness of different kinds is basically the key to any forms of need identification. We have to be able to have a sense for what's going on inside of us. And a big, big part of that for many, many people is realizing that this can be a nonverbal process. And this probably sounds a little strange coming from me, who is like just such a verbal person, but it's it's a real growing appreciation that I've had over time. I loved how you had a moment there, Dad, when you were talking about the practice of getting in touch with the younger self, and you gave a nod to maybe what you want isn't something you can put into words, but you can create an image. 
or you can create a sensation or something like that. And I think that once people who maybe have had a hard time connecting with these like very verbal processes can get more in contact with the the physical or the somatic or the imagery or something like that, it can be profoundly, profoundly powerful for them. And I think that part of that is getting better at just naming different kinds of normal needs. So this could include different needs like just competence, the need to feel basically good at things. Another one could be acceptance and appreciation for who you are. And then there are a bunch of emotional and safety and inclusion focused ones like joy and empathy and feeling like people want you there, feeling like you're being authentic. And so I think that as I got better at labeling, I was able to be more discerning about what I actually wanted as opposed to what I thought I wanted or the story I was creating about my wants and needs. And I was able to get more honest with myself about where the rubber really met the road for me personally. And that included getting real about the fact that I was a very, very sensitive little boy in a lot of various ways. And a lot of the emotions that came up around this process were uncomfortable or mm. overwhelming or painful. And that then deferred me from going through the process. And this included negative emotions, yes, but it also included positive ones. And so that's mm. one that I want to kind of spend a second on here. If you're somebody who's ever become at all stymied in your emotional self-expression, Positive emotions can be almost as uncomfortable and threatening as negative ones. Because like once you pop the cork, the whole thing comes out. And it's like, are you comfortable popping the cork? And that was a, a realization that was driven by my own therapeutic process that happened when I was kind of in my mid-20s. And I sort of realized that as I had become very guarded and emotionally defended, yes, I had cut myself off from a lot of painful emotions. But as the bottom came up, the top also went down. Hmm. And I had gotten more separated from my positive ones as well. And I had to go through kind of a deliberate process of feeling my good feelings, letting myself have a moment of joy and really expressing that out with other people in a way that like, yeah, it was like a little, little maybe a little exuberant or big. And you have a moment with other people, they're used to you being pretty reserved emotionally. And all of a sudden you're coming out with a lot of like exuberance. So there's sort of a whoa or, or whatever. And just getting okay with that and going through that yeah. process really organically. Um, that was really, really big for me, for sure. So to say back to you, some of what you said in a <laughs> the forest classic, yes, way, yes. Role reversal here. You're talking about giving yourself permission. And you're talking about investigating, inquiring. Yes. Yeah. And just to kind of yeah. flag permission and inquiry. Totally. Love that. Yeah. Uncovering, unpacking, listening, listening for what's unsayable. I want to underline inquiry, investigation, curiosity, and just kind of highlight it as, for example, one of the seven factors of enlightenment in the Buddhist mm. tradition. It's that appreciated. And I know people who are really far along in their practice, and they will just say, like Joseph Goldstein, for example, a major American teacher, I asked him once, what is he doing with his practice? Or someone else did. And he said, well, curiosity. Mm. So yeah, so you have curiosity. And then yeah. you could tolerate. Yeah. So you had permission, mm -hmm. curiosity, and tolerance. You helped yourself tolerate what was being uncovered because sometimes when we lift up that stone, some creepy crawlers move out of it. They're a little spooky sometimes or it's uncomfortable. You did that. Another major thing is that as you became more aware, 
you integrated, you made room for these inside yourself. And also, last, you expressed, you manifested mm. these as well. You regulated their, their expression, but you operated upon them. Good for you. Oh, well, thanks, Dad. Yeah, I, I think that's a great summary of the paragraphs that poured out of me there. I've been so, so thanks for your yeah. methods, young fella. <laughs> thanks for <laughs> thanks for jumping into the coordinating seat for a second there. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's a great way to put it. So I want to put you on the spot again, if I could. Great, yeah. And it raises the question too: What do we do when we get in touch with stuff that we need or mm. really want? There's a yeah. lot of charge on Desire. it. Desire. Even, yeah. yeah, there's some craving in it. Sure. And, you know, it's potentially a little problematic. Mm. Like, for example, sure. and if I could put you on the spot in your history, I would say mm -hmm. that one of the things that has been in the mix for you when you were young was that you needed other people not to be upset. Yeah. Because when they got mm. upset, your sympathetic vibration with them happened within half a second and you were getting upset. So you managed your upset by trying to suppress their upset. Well, I think pretty insightful, Dad. <laughs> I think that's, I feel a little called out, but you're not wrong. Yep, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very yeah, yeah, no, I mean, honestly, right on the money. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what have you done and what can a person do when they discover Man. that it seems like they have a need and still that need is something that needs to be regulated in some way? Oh, cultivating a little distress tolerance is a hell of a drug for starters. <laughs> so I'll just, I'll just begin with that one. Not an easy thing to do, but it's been, it's been helpful for me. And my suspicion is that the answer to this is going to change a little bit depending on what the exact need is that the person has and, and the ways in which they are kind of coping with it maybe less than perfectly skillfully versus the options that exist for them for coping yeah. with it skillfully. So I can focus on this own example because it's super real for me, but just what I offer here may or may not be a fit for for what you, the listener, are going through these days. And hopefully there's something here that you find you find helpful. To put it really simply, I was guarded and repressed around my emotions. And because I was guarded and repressed, the expression of emotion was dangerous, including the sympathetic feeling of it, because I risked all of that guarding and repression popping out of me at any given moment in a way that A, felt really bad for me, yeah. and B, turned up the, the volume knob on what was coming out of me in a way that was probably not appropriate for the cue for whatever that emotion was. In other words, I was responding at a 10 when the initial sensation was like a three, you mm -hmm. know, and that can understandably be overwhelming or uncomfortable for the people around you. So, so that was my problem. And to your point, dad, my solution then became, okay, if I kind of curtail the expression of other people, I won't have to feel these emotions sympathetically, or I, it's a way for me to manage them. If, if they're okay, I'll be okay too. And I think there can be some positive aspects of that in terms of it, it really moves you into a stance of like wanting the people around you to be okay, which I think has some positive elements to it, but you know, it has its own problems in the ways in which they were coming out of me. And what it really became about is that my distress tolerance improved for other people's challenging emotions when I was able to deal with my own. So it became a process of deliberately experiencing out. And when I was able to kind of let the fizz out of the bottle 
I think that most people, including myself, I'm like the perfect example of this, walk around like a soda bottle that's been shaken one too many times, <laughs> and they're just full of the fizz. And that's what was happening. Every time you cracked the bottle, the whole freaking bottle exploded with me. You know, I was I was very shaken at that moment. And so I needed to deliberately crack it a little tiny bit at a time to let that reservoir feeling out. And as I was able to do that, my defense mechanism of controlling other people's emotional experience started to become less and less and less necessary over time. And then I had to deal with the habitual behavior um, mm. because there were two parts of it, right? Because I had the underlying issue, but then I had developed a habit. And the mm. habit was the habit of controlling other people's emotional expression. And even when I got better inside of myself around my feelings, I still had the habit because I just mm. built it over time. That's and such then, a great of course, distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. that's really central here that we see this. So we can see this in ourselves, right? How are we yeah. still performing these habits, even if mm. the source for them has gone away? Yeah. Really, really interesting. Yeah. And so I still had to work with that. And, and that was just practice, honestly. Mm. A lot mm -hmm. of that for me was about creating more of self-awareness yeah. and creating more pauses. So just little moments before I said something where I built in an extra half second. And I think that most people can learn how to do that. There are a lot of different processes around that for kind of building in that sort of mindful pause. But that was super helpful for me personally to just widen the distance between stimulus and response a little bit, Yeah, which gave me an ever-growing space to kind of intervene in uh, the reactions that I was having to people. So I, I hope that that answered your question without being being too, too verbose, but it was really interesting and I, I haven't really thought about it, so... I think there's so much in what you said for other people, mm, including really glad. mindfulness of the ways in which we can get hijacked by what yeah. we experience as our needs, our wants, or desires. Yeah. Could be called cravings, broadly, of one mm, kind or mm -hmm. another. And I think one of the hallmarks of that sense of craving is contraction and drivenness. And mm, we're kind of mm -hmm. and compulsion, contraction and compulsion. You know, mindfulness of that and recognizing what's problematic about it in a way that's clear-eyed, but doesn't shame oneself. Mm, Just, mm -hmm. And then goes, oh, okay. At bottom here, what do I really need? What do I really want? What's at stake here? What's getting stirred up in this way of being that I can find a better way to fulfill? And then practicing with that over time. I think that progression is extremely useful. It's one that totally. you know, we've both walked and you've helped me walk in my own life in some mm. ways. So there you are. So maybe as we finish here, you know, kind of yeah. sliding toward an end, another thing a person could do that I find kind of really powerful, mm. I've known people who've done this, is to write a kind of personal manifesto. And mm -hmm. you yeah. can write it in the I voice or you can write it in the you voice as if you're mm. addressing yourself. And whatever feels right to put in it, including imagery, maybe cutting out pictures. I mean, that's a whole other thing to do a collage. As, as you've known, I've done routinely, you know, get a- Yearly collages for yeah, a long time, yeah. Two foot by three foot, roughly, if you like, sheet of blank poster board, and then let your mind kind of wander as you twirl through the pages of many magazines, cutting out pictures and words that maybe are, are for you an expression of your wants and needs. And just sort of see what comes to you. Part of that is a little top-down where you're looking for particular images or words. Part of it is more emotional bottom-up. You turn a page and there's just something about the picture and that advertisement for wedding rings <laughs> or mm -hmm. vacations or healthcare 
that just speaks to you. And there's mm. something about it that helps you get more in touch with the needs. So doing a collage is, is a kind of manifesto. A more verbal form is to imagine that you're writing a letter to yourself or you're kind of declaring yourself, even mm. in something you're not going to share with anyone. Mm. You could maybe later, but you don't write it that way. And you basically, you know, write to yourself things like, you know, my needs have standing too, right? Yeah. This life matters also. Do I plan and hope to be fill in the age? 30, 50, 90? How do I want it to be then? And then kind of declare yourself. Declare yourself about what you are no longer going to put up with from other people, maybe. Declare for yourself what are important priorities for you to really, really keep in mind, especially if they're not so much urgent, but they're still very important. And you're, you're creating kind of a declaration. You can even make it kind of fancy. Put it on parchment paper after you get your first and second draft straight. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then tuck it away and take a look at it from time to time. It can be powerful and mind-blowing to read things you've written to yourself from a year or two or 10 ago and just kind of open it up. It can be stunning mm -hmm. even to read things you might have written you know, as a senior in high school about the life you wanted and feel both happy about the ways you fulfilled that life and poignant about the dreams that have still been deferred. Mm. Yeah. So oh, I I'll love just that. Leave you with that as a little parting shot. I think that's a super useful practice. I'm really glad that you put it in at the end here. And as we come to the end of this episode, there's a whole category of things that we haven't talked about. We've talked a lot about getting to the point of how we can start to know our wants and needs and desires, but we haven't talked virtually at all about how do we actually go about fulfilling those wants and needs and desires, including how do we communicate them to other people in the circumstances where it's necessary for us to tell others how we feel in order to get to a different outcome in our lives. I thought that there was a chance we might get to all of that during this episode of the podcast. We are currently sitting at about 60 minutes or so, so we are clearly not going to be doing that today, but that's what we're planning now on talking about next week. So today, I had a really wonderful time talking with Rick in a very self-disclosing way that I was not entirely expecting how to get in more contact with your personal wants and needs. We started the conversation by talking about different groups of people that might struggle a little bit extra to identify what they want or need. This can include people who have a really hard time sensing into their interior for one reason or another. It's particularly common for people who had to push down their needs early on in life, particularly during childhood, to have a harder time contacting their needs in adulthood. And this might have been because they were punished for expressing their needs as a child, or when they did express their needs, they were really shamed for them, or maybe they just grew up in a culture where need expression of various kinds was really looked down on. So there are two options here. And the first one is that a person doesn't really know what they want for whatever reason. And the second one is that they do know what they want, but they really struggle to express it because maybe shame or fear gets in the way. I find that for most people, a lot of this comes down to a kind of three-step process. In the first step, we accept that we have needs and preferences and wants and desires of different kinds. And yeah, 
There are some people where that is really, really hard, where if we push down our needs for long enough, deeply enough, it can be hard to realize that we have needs at all, but all people do have needs of different kinds. And then in the second step, we identify what some of our specific wants and needs are. And then in the third step, we go about meeting them. And we focused mostly on the first and second step during today's conversation, and we're going to be exploring the third one more next week. We then spent some time talking about different categories of wants and needs, where Rick has a common structure that he uses, where he focuses on three core needs, safety, satisfaction, and then connection, connecting to other people, connecting maybe to ourselves. Then I offered kind of another version where I talked about how people can have different big picture wants. This might include desires for what our life looks like or what we want to accomplish in the course of our lives, uh, various things related to fulfillment. And then second, we might have process wants and needs, and these are all of the little frictions between us and the world around us, how we would like things to be in order for us to be more comfortable or more effective or get more out of our relationships with other people. And then the third one, and this weaves in and out of the other two, are our big emotional and psychological needs of various kinds. But to simplify all of this, we're talking about two categories. What do you want less of and what do you want more of? And both of those questions can be really useful for people to engage. I then asked Rick what he thinks really supports people in getting more closely in touch with their wants and needs. And alongside that, what's really helped him engage in that process. And he walked us through a couple of different experiential exercises. The first one of these was getting in touch with what you might have really wanted for your life when you were a lot younger. To use a phrase that I like, what did you want before the world got in the way? And he really emphasized during this exercise that this doesn't have to be a verbal process. A lot of this material is actually pre-verbal. It was developed before we had easy access to complex language. So we might think of things more in terms of imagery or in terms of different feelings a person might have. Then the second experiential exercise was focused on finding a time in your life where you really felt like your wants and needs were met by the circumstances that you were in or by what you were doing. What would that really look like practically? And then the third one, and this one was really useful for me personally, was this idea of important but not urgent. And this is a whole category of desires that we have that tends to get crowded out by stuff that's really urgent, but it might not be as important. And it also focuses on what do you really want when you're setting aside all of the other things that tend to get in the way of those wants. And then Rick flipped the script on me a little bit by asking me how I've gotten better over time at identifying and meeting my wants and needs. And I focused on a, a specific example of a way in which I engaged in some maladaptive coping when I was younger around the different wants and needs that I had, how I had a really strong desire to protect myself from painful emotional experiences. And because I was a pretty empathic person, sometimes this meant controlling the emotions of the people who were around me. So I was trying to solve my problem by controlling other people in different kinds of ways. And so I talked a bit about how I worked on that over time. And for me, the big takeaway was that it was my job to deal with my emotions. And so I stopped having such a need to control other people's emotional expression when I was able to let the fizz out of the bottle a little bit at a time and to experience out those emotions in healthy ways, including for me through a lot of processes where I would listen to music and let myself cry or I would really 
contact my interior around some painful experience or do some EMDR or other kind of therapeutic approaches that can help us unearth more painful emotions. But then tied to that, a major realization for me was identifying that positive emotions were almost as risky for me as negative emotions were. Because in experiencing those positive emotions, I opened myself up to the whole of my interior and the whole thing would pour out. And a lot of what I was really afraid of was being seen as kind of hysterical almost by other people in the strength of my emotional expression. And so I tamped the whole thing down. I brought the bottom up, but I also brought the top down in my emotional expression. And that was a big thing that I had to work on. And then coming from that, I talked about a few things that had, yes, helped me, but also might help other people. And this includes developing the skill of interoception, which is a form of internal mindfulness. Mindfulness practices of various kinds are great ways to get in touch with our interior and find what we need a little bit better. And then another thing that really helped me was getting better and more granular and naming different kinds of specific needs. This can include needs for uh, feeling good at what we do, for being joyful, for feeling safe, for feeling both independent ourselves, but also accepted by those around us. Those are all really normal needs. And also tuning increasingly into some of the more nonverbal aspects of this whole thing. How does it feel like in the body to have a need met? And how can we use that as a cue for identifying when something is falling a little bit short in our life? And then, of course, we can go through a really deliberate process of identifying what we think we need or want more of in life. Uh, we can sit down, find some space, and go through, as Rick said, maybe a creative process where you collage and use images to pull together what really feels good for you. Or maybe it's more of a verbal writing process where you answer a number of questions. And this could include questions like, what were the times when you felt really comfortable? Or what kind of situations do you tend to feel really comfortable in? And then some other questions could be, are you satisfied with the quantity and quality of your relationships? What's getting in the way of you feeling satisfied these days? What tends to lead to your interactions with other people going really well? And how do you feel when they're in the process of going well? And then what does that feeling suggest about the needs that are being met by how the interaction is proceeding? And then a big question that we didn't get into during this episode, but I think we're going to explore a lot in the next one, is this one. What undelivered communications do you find yourself saying in your head over and over again that you haven't spoken out loud? So we're going to talk about that last one a lot more next week when we really get into the meat of how to meet our needs ourselves and also communicate them more effectively to other people. So if you want to receive that episode and all of our other content, you can subscribe to the podcast. We'd really appreciate it if you would. You can do that through just about any platform you're listening to it right now on. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and I put together detailed show notes for every episode that we do. You can also access ad-free versions of the episodes. We have transcripts as well. If you prefer to read rather than listen, it really is a great resource for people. Then, if you could, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to leave a rating and a positive review of the podcast. And hey, why not? Maybe tell a friend about it. It's probably the best way we have to reach new people. So until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.